Hello and welcome to Sanford Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Mariam Umar. Mariam, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Darko. How are you? Great, great. So yeah, can you just you know, go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Mariam Umar. I work as head of QA in London at an instant sales where organization called Resolve. I have actually been in the QA space for about, I would say, 15 years, maybe possibly, I think, since I was a child. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I say that is because I was always very picky about things being correct or proper, organized. You know, if I was making a cake, I wanted it to taste a specific way. Or if I was submitting an assignment for school, I wanted the formatting to be a specific way. Or if I was presenting something at university, I actually came into technology by, purely by accident. I kind of had no choice. I'm originally from Pakistan. And when I was growing up in my school, we actually had either biology or computer science as an option. And I wasn't going to go and dissect insects. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right, I have to go into computer science. There's no choice, really. And I think I'm very humbled and blessed and grateful that I found something which actually helps me a lot. For anybody who's done computer science, they know there's such a variety of topics you read and do projects on and study. And it becomes quite tricky to figure out where you want to land when you finish your courses or your degree and so on. What I found was that my knack for having things being created in a certain way so that the receiver is really happy, that kind of fell into testing a little bit and quality assurance. And this just solidified a lot when I did a course in software testing during my course in London. And then I ended up doing a thesis in mutation testing as well. And I really, really found it quite enjoyable. I didn't see it as a drain. So I decided to pursue a career in software testing. I think from now, the journey I've been on, I started on as a hands-on tester where I was doing a lot of things manually. But very quickly, I realized, okay, this is becoming really tedious. I want to find a way to automate the repetitive stuff because as humans, we are prone to missing things which are repetitive or they can become monotonous, right? And your eye just stops looking at things which are wrong. So I stepped into test automation, I think, within the first three months of my first job, which was actually in a small software house back in Liverpool Street. And from then on, the journey has just been tremendous. I was hands-on, what you would call an automation engineer, SDET, and so on, like so many flavors of the same job for about 10 years. And in those 10 years, I was quite fortunate to work in finance, mobile, restaurant booking websites, and a very large travel company as well. But what happened during that time was that initially my progression was more about, okay, I want to learn this framework and that framework. Okay, let's try and stick to one language or another. For example, BDD was coming up at the time and I actually learned Cucumber and then Specflow got invented. And, you know, what I learned in those years was that it's always best to create test automation in the language that is closer to the code base, production code base. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But 
what was missing was the guidance I needed to progress in my career because I think after 10 years of writing code and I'm sure a lot of developers or architects and people like that would feel the same that you feel that you're becoming stagnant and you want good leadership and I wasn't getting that at all it wasn't because I had bad managers it's just that they didn't have the education so I decided to step into management by choice not only to help myself but also to help other testers or QA engineers, as we could call them. And now this is, I think, year six of me doing test management. I have managed teams in Capital One, Kaplan, Thought Machine, and now I'm at Resolve, mostly finance. And I have to say management is not for everyone, but I found that I really enjoy working with people and making sure they're doing what they love to do. I want them to come to the job, not, oh my God, this is another headache. I'm not interested. And of course, when you're going into test management, especially as a quality QA person, there's a lot of influencing that needs to happen. So yeah, so that's been my journey so far. I think in terms of future aspirations, I'd like to stay in this space, but probably bring a hat of release management because I've done that previously in some roles and I found it, again, the organization and making sure we're getting what the people want is really interesting for me. Semaphore now understands your tests. With the new test reports feature, your team now has a unified report of all the parallel jobs in your CICD pipeline. Get a single test report for the whole pipeline, see filtered and skip tests on the test dashboard, and find the slowest tests in your test suite. Learn more at semaphoreci.com slash test reports. One of the things that we mentioned is that in just your previous role, when you joined the organization, it was an organization of 100 people. And as you just you know, started your position, that company was 500 plus people. And it's one of the things that is probably connecting us with all of our listeners, except the topic of, you know, just test automation and testing is that a vast majority of the companies are scaling in some way and at some pace. It's true for us, it's true for your current company and also for the majority of our clients. It's just the question, are they scaling, you know, from 20 to 100 or 100 to 500? But that's one of the pieces. And what was super interesting that except just under quotes, you know, the quality of the product and of the testing process, release process and all that. You mentioned that you also think a lot about the quality of communication and the quality of processes that are, you know, present in the organization as a whole and in engineering teams. You can put that nicely in the words when you were explaining that to me. Can you also for our listeners explain on the high level how you see that? Yeah, so I think the first thing to remember, and I really want to iterate this here, is that when people talk about QA in general, a lot of them are only talking about testing. And testing is a subset of quality assurance. I just want to put that out there because it's extremely important to make sure you are creating that understanding in the organization. When you're saying something that this feature has got QA sign-off, what is actually happening is that you're only doing tests, manual tests, exploratory tests, whatever tests you're doing. And then you're saying, yes, I'm happy to sign it off. Whereas you may not be doing things like, okay, what happens if this feature's flag is switched off? 
or what happens when this feature interacts with another feature. It could be, you know, have you updated the documentation that your customer is using? There's like so many aspects to think about when you're talking about signing anything off from a QA perspective. Secondly, as you mentioned, I've seen and experienced that quality assurance is kind of formed of three pillars, at least in my experience. And I talk about it as product, people, and process, or the three Ps, where you're thinking about, first and foremost, you're obviously thinking about the product's quality. That is your first responsibility as someone in an organization, because, I mean, that's what's bringing in the money. Let's just, you know, put it out there. And if the organization's not making money, hiring the right people will not happen. Creating an amazing estimation process will not work either. That's the bread and butter of a company. So it's important to make sure that most of the strategy you create revolves around the product quality. And that can have things like test automation. That can have things like, you know, how are you doing CICD? That can have things like test coverage and things like that. The second thing is the people, the quality of people or the quality of the team. I'll start with really talking about more from a QA team perspective. Lots of organizations have cross-functional teams. But lots of organizations also follow the Spotify model. Lots of organizations have QA sitting outside of the teams. Like, There's no correct answer for this. How do you want to structure your team? Really, you need to understand how the business is flowing. But the type of people you want in the team is what is important here. I've had the fortune of hiring a team from scratch, but most often you are coming into a team which was hired already and either they've not had a manager before or they've had managers who were unsuccessful. So it's really about understanding why those people were hired in the first place, what was the skill set they brought on board, and really thinking about what do you need for the type of teams these people will support. And lastly, the third thing is process quality, which is really where we think about, okay, how is our agile process? This is where you will see a lot of coaches or specialists come in and tell you where you can eliminate waste. And this is also why we talk about fast feedback. That's what Agile is about. And really, are the processes you're using catering to it or not? Is it taking too long to find out whether you're developing something in one sprint and getting feedback in the third sprint? Obviously, a process like that will not scale. And the reason process quality is so important as well is because if you have the right processes in place, you'll automatically become efficient as a wider engineering team, I feel. So yeah, so those are the three pillars I wanted to talk about. Great. And as you're just starting a new position, this might be on top of your mind. You have to do some exploration once you join. Exploration of processes, meet the people, you know see where the company is going and all that. And this might be useful if you can talk about this, what's kind of your checklist or what's the process? There is lots of material I've read. The one book which is really good is called The First 90 Days. Sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the author. But it actually helps you understand how to set up yourself for success when you're starting a new job. It talks about how to have your first one-to-ones and so on. Like some of the things I try and do is I intentionally ask people, you know, sometimes people try and 
sway your thinking even before you've met a person in the organization. Let's say, for example, I'm head of QA, I'm reporting to the CTO, and I have to meet the head of product, right? Or say head of infrastructure, because most organizations have those roles. And sometimes people will, instead of letting you form an opinion, they will say, oh, so-and-so is really bad with meetings, or they'll say, You should have a catch up with the head of product, but, you know, don't be upset if they seem preoccupied or something, you know, some saying something about their personality or the way their team works, which already forms a bias in your head. I'm very, very mindful at the beginning of this job. I've been in this job five weeks now. There were some statements made by my team to me. And I was like, no, we don't talk about it like that. We're all in this together. And then two weeks later, I think I was just really getting confused about some information and they start laughing. It's like, Mariam, would you like to change your opinion? (laughs) But it's very important first to make sure you're not letting bias creep in your head. And the second thing is I take the time to understand the product. So even if I'm not going to write code or ever going to look at a pull request, it's important to make sure you can set it up on your machine. You can run the app. Or, you know, you have a basic test login to log into the program. And so it's so important because that then helps you understand what your team is talking about. It creates respect there. And it's okay. I'm not shy of saying, I'm sorry, I still don't understand this. Can you explain to me where the data is coming from? Or I don't have access to the database, whatever. Because the more time you spend in understanding the actual product you're going to be working on, the better it is in the future. Other things which form my checklist are... I have a one-to-one with my entire team. And I have to say, this has been the most challenging piece in my current role. I have about 15 people and they're all in different time zones. (laughs) Nobody works in the UK time zone. And that in itself is a challenge. And then in addition to the time zone piece, if you have like a truly global team, you're also looking at global culture. Everybody comes from a different culture. So the way they express themselves in a conversation is completely different. Some cultures we can understand, some we don't. So, you know, I have started giving everybody the benefit of doubt because maybe I don't understand how they're communicating to me with a problem. But what's important is when I do the one-to-ones, I ask everybody the same three or four questions. Everybody. Like, what team are you in? What are your current challenges? How can I help you? And do you have feedback? I am very, very, very much about feedback because feedback is what will really help you improve the quality of the work we do. It's like, if you think about it, it brings the agile thinking to a head where it's all about providing fast feedback. So it's the same when it comes to people that you want to have the fast feedback. And lastly, I think the other thing I do to try and set myself up right is I try and have some core hours when I'm going to be available for troubleshooting or, you know, firefighting. But then you should also spend some time apart where you can actually do some thinking. This is a mistake I've made in a lot of jobs, I would say. It's really important to set that time aside and also tell your team that this is what you're going to do. Let's say the last two hours of the day, you're probably going to be doing some 
documenting of a new strategy or creating some visibility or creating some boards or, you know, something like that or reading some stuff which you can apply to the team. So, yeah, so that's how I try and set myself up in a new organization. Semaphore now understands your tests. With the new test reports feature, your team now has a unified report of all the parallel jobs in your CI/CD pipeline. Get a single test report for the whole pipeline, see filtered and skipped tests on the test dashboard, and find the slowest tests in your test suite. Learn more at semaphoreci.com slash test reports. And in terms of those three Ps, of course, that's too big of a thing to have in a single role in any organization, unless it's a very tiny startup, you know, company just starting and, you know, there is someone taking care of all of those three things. What's your advice on communicating those issues throughout the organization? There might be some people who are more in charge of process, as you are seeing and learning through the lens of a QA team and you as a QA lead, and you are noticing some things in the organization that might be tweaked. It can be related to the engineering part of the organization or, you know, a product focus or a product direction and so on. What would be some of your advices, how to broadcast that throughout the company, request a change or, you know, facilitate that change? This is actually quite tricky to do. That's why I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) As I found in my last couple of roles, I think, especially when it comes to processes. So for example, let's just take an example One thing I try and do when it comes to test automation is to try and use test automation as a quality gate. So most organizations, if you're following Gitflow or whatever process you're using for CICD, we want to move from dev to staging to pre-prod to production, right? Usually, let's just say those are the four environments. And we want to have quality gates in place saying, okay, these are the tests we want to run. If they're green, then it will automatically progress to the next stage and so on. Now. That's a vision from a test automation perspective. If you think about it, that's for product quality. But then if you're going to try and enforce something like that in the pipeline, you will definitely have pushback from the engineering team saying, oh, let's just say the end-to-end tests take too long to run. And it's taking too long for us to go to staging, which means that we're down from 10 deployments a day to one deployment a day. Let's just say that's the comment we're getting. The problem then there becomes that it's not really about quality assurance. It's more about the team being precious about their process. And that's where my role then turns into, you have to articulate the value. And I choose the word articulate rather than show here, because if we are moving to staging quite quickly, let's just say, but we're still finding creating one hotfix every three days, of course, that's a lot of effort gone. That's the number you need to articulate to the team that, look, if we are waiting for these tests to run, yes, they're slow. Yes, we have technical items to make sure they can run in parallel, or we can increase the number of pods that we're using to support these tests, etc., which is a technical implementation. But you really need to articulate the value that putting those all quality gates in place will bring. And you cannot have the QA team implementing those gates everywhere. I see people in the QA space as people who are highlighting where we can improve and 
go helping us go into a preventative state rather than in a reactive state as an organization when we find issues with the product. Then if you think about the people and the process piece, it's kind of all of it overlaps each other because one thing is creating a vision that, okay, to improve product quality, we want automated quality gates, but then we need the right people who can implement them with that skill set and that mindset, but then also the implementation of it. And if you want to do it over multiple teams, then you also want the right process, automated process in place. So if you think about it, it's just a way of presenting how we can improve something. What I've seen, the most clashes you get is when you talk about process quality. It's not even about people quality because at the end of the day, everybody has a team that they want to run in a specific way, which is fine. But it's something the team lead or the engineering manager should really have a vision of how they want to do. And they do. But process quality is something which all of us have a different experience of. Some of us have come from really small startups and we think, okay, you know, we can just deploy to production every day. Nobody's using this API yet. Or you can have people coming from the finance sector and say, okay, we cannot do this until we have pen testing done on this piece. So you can have those two extremes, right? when it comes to process. And it really then becomes about, are you going to do what the people are saying that needs to be done? Or are you going to do what Agile tells us? Or are you going to do what the Scrum Master is saying? Again, it becomes more an advice. And that's where a lot of the metrics come in play. Dora metrics, which a lot of people now know of or use, they're mentioned in the Accelerate book or the State of DevOps report. They are really useful. They really help you understand Because sometimes you can have different processes being followed by different teams. And that's also okay, as long as the output is the same. And that's what we need to focus on, rather than drill down on one team is doing Fibonacci series for estimation and one team is doing number of days that doesn't work. Well, yes, we know it doesn't work. But if they're all producing the output at the same time, yes, forecasting becomes difficult. But at the end of the day, it's about, again, choosing your battles and figuring out what is not giving you the desired output or what is creating more chaos and trying to fix that first. As you said, you entered the QA area, you said from the childhood, (laughs) but you did enter it during the university, you know, the masters that you did and other papers that you wrote. And you gave us the overview that you initially did some testing. Three months later, you had those things automated and... Then you spend a decade in that domain. What are maybe some advices that you would give to people who are for some time in the QA space and maybe are feeling stuck at this point in their career and they would want to break out of it? But, you know, there are various directions that people might want to take. What are some of the options that you have seen people taking or you have maybe yourself considered those? So when you're in the QA space, a question which you see because that's the behavior you see in your organizations is, okay, the next step for me is to become a developer because I've done test automation for a while. I can write these frameworks. That's probably a very senior tester. Let's just go according to levels. And I actually, with my experience, actually resisted that move a lot because that is not what I know I'm good at. In your heart, you know what you're good at. And if you're a good QA who has made to that level, then a lot of QAs who become quite senior, they start actually writing frameworks 
or they become test architects in the organization. So they start working beyond BDD and all of that. They are the ones who are looking into how can I do automated quality gates? Why don't I wear that hat of adding a DevOps skill set to myself and really help move testing left, for example? Another one is, which I haven't seen a lot of, but there's a huge requirement for it now, is non-functional testing. There's not a lot of people who understand it. I'll raise my hand. I still need to read a lot about it because it is difficult to understand. People only think about non-functional testing as, oh, load testing and stress testing. But that's not the only thing. There's also accessibility. There's reliability. There's security. Like There's so many variations of it. But then again, don't start looking into all of them. Look into one, master it. It becomes difficult. I understand that. So it's those areas which I feel are still very much uncovered. For the explorer tester, who's quite senior, and there are lots and lots of people I've met whose books we've read and so on, there's so much more you can bring to the table by devising ideas and visualizing where the gaps are. For example, there's a technique called value stream mapping. You could do that and show, you know, how long it's taking you to actually find out whether this new feature will work with another feature. Where is the waste? Because again, it's about being more efficient and trying to prevent issues rather than two teams completely finishing two features and then integrating them. Another way of doing this is I've been very fortunate to work with a couple of very good exploratory testers who actually looked at things like impact mapping and so on and actually trying to understand the architecture. Putting your hands up when there's a task, technical task. For example, I'll give you an example. There was once a story where the team was going to add a new API and whenever that API was triggered, there was supposed to be a new entry made into the database table or something like that. And that engineer, test engineer, just held their hand up and said, this task is too technical. I disagree because that task basically means you have to open up the database, run that task manually and see if the entry is made. That's not difficult. If you can't even do those things, like you don't work in tech, it's not about using the application. It's about making sure that the data flows in the application correctly as well. So you can expand to that. So this is probably for senior testers. Going back to mid-level or junior people, again, there's such a lot of opportunity there. I try and keep myself up to date. I say try with a big quote, unquote, with blogs published by Ministry of Testing and InfoQ. And, you know, there's just so much information out there. Even Stack Overflow has some quite interesting ideas there or people whose books you've read. All of these people actually still do a lot of speaking A lot of the conferences content is now on YouTube. Thankfully, because of COVID, a lot of things have happened virtually. So a lot of this is now easily accessible. I would actually try and find the time to read and keep myself up to date with what is actually the new techniques. So for example, I'll give you an example. I'm trying to look for a front-end automation engineer. And everybody I'm speaking to has come up with Cypress. And my question is, why did you choose Cypress? You need to understand the why rather than just following the trend, right? So everybody's using Kubernetes today. Tomorrow it will be something else and everybody will start using it, not knowing why they need to use it. So always make the questioning of the why, which is kind of the core, I would say, skill of a QA engineer 
is something you should always use when trying to learn more and go in a specific direction in your career. Great, great. You answered my last question before I asked it. And what are the resources and what are the ways that you're maybe suggesting your team members that they can level themselves up? And from all of those valuable resources, I think that this why at the end that you mentioned is actually probably the most important one that is so often overlooked, you know, why I'm choosing this database, but everyone else is using it. So it must be right. <laughs> it must be right. I'm sure it is right, but you also need to do your own due diligence, right? Yeah, I understand why is that right and why is something else maybe not right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for this great conversation. I'm sure that it will be very valuable for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, again, good luck with your new role. I'm sure that it will be very exciting setting up a new team. Yeah, exciting is a very small word. <laughs> no, but thank you so much, Darko, for this. I really, really enjoyed speaking to you. And I hope I've managed to help some people through this conversation as well. Thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.